as we turn our focus to Revelation chapter 4, uh, I want to I recap chapters 1 through 3. Jesus is amazing. The churches are facing some difficult times, but Jesus is still amazing. And if they'll just hold on, if they'll do what he's called them to do, they'll see just how amazing he is. Um, to, and really, in order to understand what happens from this point on, you have to, you have to be clear on what has already happened. Chapters one through three, but you also have to keep in mind that Jesus is amazing. And I say that half tongue cheek, um, kind of as a, a way for us to access it. Revelation is a book that's not just about all the things that are going to happen in the end of the world. It's about God. It's about Jesus Christ reigning supreme for all eternity. And so if you lose sight of that, if you lose sight of just who this book is about, it's not the revelation of things to come. That's not what the book is. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you lose sight of Christ, you've really missed the whole point. And last week, we kind of set some ground rules, specifically two come to mind that, 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 are, that are essential. One is that when we interpret this book, we interpret it in its normal sense. We don't, we don't try to make things into some crazy allegory that, that the biblical author doesn't really mean to do. We don't take and read what he says and then say, well, this is what I think, and put whatever we think on top of it. We take it at what he's written, and sometimes we won't understand that. This is one of those cases in Revelation chapter 4 where some of the symbolism starts to really hit, and it's hard to picture what's going on. And so for a moment, I want you to close your eyes, and I'm going to read the chapter. Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to read all 11 verses of the chapter, okay? Just close your eyes and picture what's going on, okay? After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne there was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white raiments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And all around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things. And by Your will they existed and were created. Pray with me. Father, what a vision of who You are. I can hear John struggling to come up with words. Faced with the glory of Your majesty. And poor John, he's doing his best just to try to describe it. I'm sure he even felt it adequate too. I know I would. Father, help us see You. Help us see the glory of Your majesty that our problems may look fail, frail and pitiful, that our circumstances may be seen in light of your eternal glory, your complete sovereignty, your righteous dominion. Help us see you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What a picture. Did you see it in your head? No, you didn't. <laughs> this is his best attempt to try to describe it. And our best attempts to try to imagine it will look, terrible compared to the real thing um and i have the task of trying to help it come to life john has in the first uh, uh three chapters given us a vision of christ as one who is standing in the tabernacle in the holy of holies with seven golden lampstands with seven stars in his hand the one with the seven spirits of god who is in control who reigns over the seven churches and has told him Write. Write it down. Send some letters to churches. I've got something for you to write. And he talks to these seven churches. Churches that were facing persecution. Churches that had life easy. That thought they were rich but were really poor. Thought they were poor but were really rich. Churches that faced all sorts of different problems and challenges. Churches that remind us that no matter what the situation we may happen to face, that it's still the same Jesus. It's still the same God who's in control. If you are going to get the point of revelation, you cannot lose sight of God. It's easy to get lost in the maps and the charts. It's easy to try to lose yourself in the discussions on when things take place and how exactly they are. We could talk for hours and hours about who these elders are that are around the throne. We could talk days on end about all of the details of Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and how they match up with John's vision in Revelation. We could talk for endless periods of time about all of the little details, trying to figure out who this person is, who this character is, how they play in, trying to match world events to what takes place in the Scriptures. But if we've lose sight of the Jesus Christ that this book reveals, then we've missed the point. We may as well go home, not even bother with it. John is infatuated with God, with Christ. I mean... He was one of the inner circle, remember? That's why John's gospel is so different from all the others. 
All the others are talking about, let me tell you what Jesus did. Tell you how Jesus fulfilled prophecy. John says, let me prove to you he's God. From the very first verse. Because he realizes that if you will see Jesus Christ in his true light, if you will understand who he is, <laughs> everything else doesn't matter. Mitchell, put your hand down. Thank you, buddy. You, you, if you don't, if, if you just keep your eyes on Jesus, if you will fix your eyes on Jesus, you'll get it. You'll have it made. I'm convinced the more that I study Revelation and the more that I study Luke and the more that I study my Bible, I am convinced that the biblical authors aren't just telling us about Jesus because it's important for us. I'm convinced that it's the only thing that matters. Understanding who Christ is, His nature as God, His character as the Messiah, and the role that He plays is so critical. And so for this entire chapter, John is enraptured with this view of the throne and I'm convinced he doesn't want to describe the one on the throne quite perfectly yet, but it's Jesus. I'm convinced he sees Jesus, but not just Jesus, the way he saw him walking on earth with him. Not just Jesus like he is in stained glass windows. I'm convinced he sees Jesus in the fullness of his glory. I'm convinced that when he looks up at the throne and he sees the one sitting on the throne, that he is seeing Christ in all of his splendor. And he just can't begin to describe it. Listen to what he does say. He says, after this, I looked. After what? After the letters to the seven churches. After this, I looked. Some people think this is a continuation of the visions that he's already having. Some people think that there was a pause. Like he had this vision. He probably wrote the letters to the churches, like wrote that stuff down. And then he's having another vision. We don't know for sure. But whatever the case is, he looks and there's a door. And it's open. He sees up in heaven a door that's open and he hears a voice. And the voice says, come here, come up here. He says, it sounds like a trumpet. It's like a, a, a loud blast. It's something that he can't ignore. It's something that pierces through his ears, that, that just captures his attention. And it says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. We are in whole different territory now. Chapter 1 through 3, that's things that he's seen, things as they are. Chapter 4, we're in a whole different world. It's now things that haven't yet happened. Now we begin the apocalyptic part. We've been in epistle. Now we're switching to prophecy and apocalyptic. Now we've moved from what is to what's to come. And boy, what an entrance what's to come makes. Because as he looks in that door... Maybe he walks through it. He's in the spirit of God and he sees the throne. A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Can you picture it? He says it looks like, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. We don't know exactly what these stones are. Carnelian probably had a dark red, like a ruby or, or a blood red sort of thing. Jasper would have had some kind of opaque, possibly. Possibly it's another stone that has this kind of greenish hue to it. In fact, both of those, and emerald, are in the breastplate of the high priest. Both of them are in the walls of the heavenly city. He's saying, I can't really compare. What, I can't compare them to a man. 
oh, he's so much more than a man. He's so brilliant. He's so, he's so glorious. I can't just say he's a dude sitting there. <laughs> that, just, that just isn't good enough. How am I going to describe him? And the best thing he can come up with is it's just like stones. It's like looking at these precious stones. The light casting from him that, that looks almost like light going through fine jewelry with its beauty and splendor. He says that, that's the closest he can get. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. This isn't the first time we've seen a vision of the throne. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel has this vision, and above the expanse, he says, over their heads, he sees these angels, and over them, there's this great expanse, like crystal. And above that, he can see straight through it. And above that, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. He says it kind of looks like a person. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal. The best he can do is to say it's like, it's like finely polished gold or silver, some kind of metal. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, an appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of that brightness all around. By the way, when Ezekiel sees it, you know what he does? And when I saw it, I fell on my face. There's someone else approaches the throne of God. In fact, it's another prophet. Do you remember the story? In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, picture this. Have you ever seen a wedding that was like a, a royal wedding type thing where, where the, the bride had this dress, and the dress had a huge long train trailing behind her? Now, normally, when, when Carrie and I got married, she had a train long enough that, that, that she had to have help with the back of her dress. Okay, but if you've ever seen like the royal weddings or weddings of big, important people like that, you'll see there's like several people helping out. Right now, imagine a train that fills the entire temple. I've never seen anything like that. His his glory is so great. And think about that's kind of what the dress symbolizes. Symbol kind of symbolizes the glory of the person. The longer the train, the more important they are. God's train just fills the whole room. Like you can't even, you can't get around it. And he says, above him stood seraphim and he describes them. And those seraphim, verse three, calling to one another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice who, of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And what does he do? He says, woe is me. The sight of all this gets him thinking about what a sinner he is. And how unclean he is. I wonder if John felt any of that. Face to face, looking in the throne room of God, I wonder if John felt a little pang in his heart that said, you're nothing like this. Maybe. Maybe Christ had done the work in his heart and he knew the only reason he had a right to be there was because of what Jesus had already done. Back in Revelation, he says, I, 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 can't, I can't describe it. The glory of this God sitting on this throne. And then around the throne, around the throne, there are 24 other thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders 
This is one of those points of interpretation. Who are these elders? I don't care. (laughs) There are different views. I shouldn't say I don't care. There are different views. Some say that they're angels or angelic beings. Some say that they represent the 24 groups of priests from the Aaronic priesthood. If you'll remember when we talked about Zechariah being in the temple, there were 24 groups of priests that would serve in the temple throughout the year. And then a couple of weeks that all of them would serve together. But those 24 different um, groups would each take their turn serving. And so each one of these elders represents one of those groups. Maybe. Some say, well, this represents the church, right? Just like the there was a Levitical priesthood in Israel, Peter tells us that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. That might explain why they have crowns and why they're clothed in white. In Revelation chapter 5, we read a little bit about their function. 5.8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people of God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And they're praising God. So maybe these are church folks. Maybe it's some of both. There's 12 tribes of Israel, 12 original apostles, 12 plus 12 is 24. Maybe that's it. Maybe they represent both Israel and the church. I have to be honest with you. I'm not completely sure. Kind of depends on your interpretation. I do know this. Who they are don't matter. Not compared to the one on the throne. Because look what they do. Skip down to... um, There you go. Verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him. That word fall down is the primary word for worship. It's to prostrate yourself and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast down their crowns before the throne. They don't care about the crowns. They don't care about their thrones. They care about the one on the big throne. And that tells me whoever they are, whether they're the church, whether they're Israel, whether they're both, whether they're angels, whether, doesn't matter. Wouldn't you like to be one of the 24 elders who does nothing but praise God all the time? Wouldn't that be neat? There's these 24 elders clothed in white, golden crowns on their heads, and they're worshiping God. Verse 5, and from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. This is an amazing view. The psalmist once writes, Who is the king of glory? This is the king of glory. Before his throne, there's this sea of glass, like crystal. I have to be honest with you. I'm having trouble picturing it too. As beautiful as the surrounding is, you never see mentioned in the scripture God's throne without seeing God. There's never a case where the throne of God is mentioned empty. Never. There's a reason for that. You see, as great as the throne is, and as great as the room is around the throne, so much greater is the one on the throne. It's kind of like, well, think about a wedding. Let's, let's use a wedding. Who has the best clothes in the whole wedding? It ain't the groom, and it ain't the bridesmaids, and it ain't the mother of the bride. It's the bride. 
Everything focuses on her, right? And so you would imagine everything else is about her. It's all about her. That's what I get the picture of here. Everything turns your eye to the one on the throne. Oh, the great, these 24 elders that are surrounding the throne, how great they are, and these four living creatures that are around, how, how, how interesting they must be. But yet they're just turning your attention straight back to the one on the throne. Great cathedrals are built to turn your eye upward. They're made for you to feel like a tiny little ant underneath a huge, impressive God. They're made to inspire worship like that. And I think sometimes we miss that. We don't have ornate ceilings here. We don't have... The building is nice, but it's not, you know, it's not made like that. Sometimes I think we miss the greatness of God just trying to have him close. And we have to be really careful because sometimes we push God so far away that our vision of him grows dim. So we can't just push him off and say he's far, far, far away. We won't really see him very well. But we can't be so close to him that Jesus is my co-pilot or he's my bud. Yes, he is the friend of sinners, but he is also God Almighty. And one thing that this passage really lays on my heart is that I need him to be both. I need him to be magnificent in glory. I need him to be worthy of worship. I need him to be indescribable. But I also need him to be near. Near so that I can behold him. Near so that I can get close to him. Near so that I can experience life with him, relationship with him. And the beauty of our God is that he is both. He is both much, much greater than us. And he's also near. There's a tension there. That's a good tension. You should live with a little bit of tension. Don't try to make God fit into your little box and say, oh, well, this this perfectly describes him. If a God fits in your box, you got too small of a God. Isn't that part of the problem with idolatry? We want God to be on our terms. We want to make him how we like him. We want to fashion him in our image. We want to make him look like us, talk like us, act like us. God says, I will not give my glory to another. I am God. Don't even try to make an image of me. Because anything you make will be far short. Around the throne, there's these four living creatures full of eyes. And he says, I I can't quite describe them, but one's kind of like a lion. One's kind of like an ox. One's kind of like a man. One's kind of like an eagle. And their whole job is to praise God. Day and night, verse 8 says, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. There is coming a day when they cannot say that anymore. There is coming a day where they will say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is. But for now, they have to say, and who is to come. Praising God day and night, night and day, never stopping. And so those 24 elders that every time they praise God, fall down in worship, they're constantly falling down in worship. They fall down in worship. They get back up and then they fall down again. And they get back up and they fall down again. 
constantly, day and night, night and day before the throne. The praises are ringing around His throne constantly. And when we have a chance to sing music that we can't even recognize on the page, music that we've sung for ages, music that we sang when we were little, this high, knee high to a grasshopper, music that our parents sang and that their parents sang and that their parents sang, music that had been around for generations, music that sometimes a cappella because there are no instruments, sometimes fully orchestrated, music that's been recorded by professional musicians, chanted by Gregorian monks, sung by some lady in a hat that can't sing worth a flip, singing praises to God no matter how good we might sound, no matter how good we might look, no matter how long it's been going on. This praising of God, has it's been going on since God created the creatures that are around the throne praising Him. And it will go on for all eternity. And we get this little tiny slice here and now where we get to praise the Almighty God who deserves all the praise that we can muster and so much more. This is not a picture of God who can fit in a box. You would think they'd get tired praising God. You'd think that their knees would wear out from all that falling. You'd think... You'd think they'd get tired of throwing their crowns down. They don't. That's how big their view of God is. It has enraptured them to the point where that's all they want to do is praise Him. So over and over they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You're worthy because of who you are and what you've done. You're worthy of praise, God. I keep coming back to this, who who God is and what he has done ought to make a difference in the way that we live our lives. And if we follow the example in Revelation 4, that difference is by having a life of praise. Father, help us praise you. We're not very good at it. We get tired, lonely, disappointed, angry, jealous, proud. So we're not very good at praising you. Not as good as we need to be. God, help us be better. Help us see more of you. Because the more we see you, I, I feel like the more you'll turn our hearts to praise you. The more we see you, the more we'll see that you're worthy of praise. The more that we'll want to praise you. And the more that we want to praise you, and the more that we see that you're worthy of praise, well... We'll get better at it. God, take away the stuff that doesn't need to be in our lives. Sin, the burdens that you haven't placed on us. Remove the distractions, things that keep us from loving you. And help us praise you. Help us praise you for who you are. Holy, holy, holy. Help us praise you for what you've done. For you've created all things. And you've redeemed us for your glory. Be glorified in our lives. Be glorified in our words. Be glorified in the whole earth. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. In your worthy name we pray. Amen.